You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Laquandra Nesbitt. Welcome, Laquandra. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Laquandra is the director of the District of Columbia Department of Health. She served in that position now for over six years. She started January 2015. She's a family physician. She has a lot of expertise spanning many different topics, early childhood, Affordable Care Act implementation, medical marijuana, and prior to coming to the district, was the director for public health in the Louisville Metropolitan Department of Public Health and Wellness. She's an MD, a proud graduate of the University of Michigan, degree in biochemistry, MD from Wayne State University, and a master's public health management and policy from Harvard School of Public Health. Andrew Schwartz sends his regrets. He's on vacation this week with his family and can't join us, but sends his regards to you. And before we get going, special thanks to you, Laquandra, for the time you've given us as a member of the CSIS London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine high-level panel that Heidi Larson and I co-chair, directed by my colleague, Catherine Bliss. It's been so great to have you be part of that group focused on public confidence and misinformation. We'll be publishing that report in early May, and we're hoping we can enlist you into that discussion, that public rollout and discussion. And special thanks to your kind staff person, Kim Henderson. Dr. Henderson's helped us yet again make this all happen. So a special shout out. To Kim, let me start. I'm going to start with some personal questions. I hope you don't mind, but you came to Washington, as we said a moment ago, six years ago from Louisville to serve as director of health. What was your mandate and why Why did you choose to come here? What was it that pulled you here at that time in your career? Sure. So it's a very interesting question because at that time of my career, I was pretty much all settled to no longer do any more governmental public health. Interestingly, before I went to Louisville, I served as a senior deputy and principal senior deputy in the health department here in D.C. for about three years. So I had a lot of familiarity with the city, with the challenges that the city faced from a health perspective, but also a great affinity for many of the team members that were here at D.C. Health at the time, many of whom still remain. And so I often tell people coming back to D.C. felt like coming back for unfinished business. You know, so many initiatives that you start around women's health and child health and uh, some of the work that we were doing at the time in that space, and as well as building our public health infrastructure. I sort of walked away from that and into Kentucky and was able to come back and help many of those initiatives thrive. And so you were undeterred by how crazy the District of Columbia can be, right? I mean, (laughs) when you look at the District of Columbia, you've got, first of all, obviously huge disparities. Equity is at the center of everything that's done by government. But you have a governance that's a bit different. It's a bit more shared governance with the federal government, with Congress, with others. It's fragmented. And and we're we're not a state. We're kind of part of a region. We're part of a region with Virginia and Maryland, and so it's it's a different dance, right? It's a different dance being here in D.C. as a public health director and leader. But uh, from what you just said, you already knew that, so you weren't scared off 
at the prospect right. of coming here. You must have seen great opportunities when you came back. Sure. You know, I think there's quite a bit to be glad about in terms of the infrastructure of the District of Columbia, right? Although we have the burden of having to submit our legislation to Congress for approval before it's fully enacted on a permanent basis, we do function, enjoy the function of a city, county, and a state in terms of our regulatory authority, our ability to do programming that really touches our people, as well as our how we access resources from the federal government. It's equivalent to all the other states. So um, we're well positioned in terms of being being eligible for funding, whether it be WIC or SNAP-Ed or cancer prevention funding that comes out of the CDC, we receive all of those dollars similar to a state. And then we don't have the added complication of a state receiving funds and figuring out how to give it out to all of their cities and counties or jurisdictions within the state. Everything we receive is ours for us to program and be able to put in the right places. Because of that dynamic, many of our community-based organizations and healthcare providers, we kind of view them in the same way when we're thinking about uh, secondary distribution of resources from federal funds that we receive. How do we really increase the capacity of our community-based organizations, nonprofits, and health centers and hospitals to really uh, do a lot of that on-the-ground work that may be slightly different than what they experience if they have a regional presence in, in Maryland or Virginia? The last part I'll say about it, too, is that um, we're always having to be mindful of our regional presence. Our daytime population almost doubles from our nighttime population with many people coming in to work. It's often thought of as coming to work for the federal government, but that's really probably only about 30%. Uh, the rest of them are coming in to work in our hospitality and entertainment and sports industry. Many of them also come in to work in our healthcare facilities. About 75% of our healthcare workers do not live in our jurisdiction. And that's made for some very interesting approaches, I should say, during COVID-19 in terms of how we collaborate across the region for, for services. Yes. I've lived here in the district. I returned to Washington, D.C. I'd been living in Ethiopia. I came back mid-year of 1993, so it's been 28 years now. The health system in D.C. has gone through some tough times, right? I mean, we studied uh, carefully HIV several years ago, and it was really rough but the last many years, we've seen steady progress. It's, it's been very encouraging, and it's thanks to people like you making the commitment you've made. Let's talk a little bit about the early days of the SARS-CoV-2. I mean, when, when the coronavirus first landed, <laughs> first became apparent here in the United States and at your doorstep, what were your thoughts? How did you react? Well, they were many, especially in those first couple of weeks. And when we were really beginning to see that this was a pathogen or virus that was going to be quite pervasive in the U.S. and we needed to be thinking about a broad range of strategies in terms of what its impact would be in the District of Columbia. Some people know that about two to three months before the global pandemic was declared, the pneumonia that ultimately became COVID-19 disease was first identified. And we received notification of that in late December and used our health alert systems to 
make all of our healthcare providers and public health partners aware of this pathogen. And so you have this sort of period of time every time one of these emerging infectious diseases is identified and the CDC alerts us, you have a small window where you can pretty much see if this is going to ramp up and escalate like Zika or if it's going to be something like SARS-CoV-1 and MERS that really did not have as much impact in the U.S. I had had a very intentional focus on increasing our emergency management and response capacity within our public health agency. Uh, And someone sent me a video not too long ago of an all-staff meeting we had. I think it was in 2016 or 2015. And I was explaining to all of the staff that you have your regular job and then your all other duties is assigned as your public health emergency job. And so we had really begun to sensitize our staff to that. Many of them are trained in incident management team principles using the um, sort of the federal infrastructure for that. So, you know, we were ready, right, from a health emergency perspective. We had exercise in the region. We had exercise locally at home. So we were ready. And then there's all these other things that comes with an emerging infectious disease, right? You're ready, but we're responding to this virus with a little bit of information about how it's transmitted and still so much more to learn. We're responding to this virus pretty much committed to the fact that the only way out of this is vaccination. But in March and April and May of 2020, you have no idea how real the schedule is going to be in terms of getting vaccines to people by the end of the year. So you're constantly thinking through and evolving and assessing how effective your strategies are while you're still learning so much about the emerging infectious disease. And I I think our team here did a remarkable job with digesting all of that information, being very well learned in terms of the science around SARS-CoV-2, both from the clinical perspective, but also the community mitigation perspective. Yeah. You know, when we hit that one-year mark, uh, March 11th of the declaration by the World Health Organization of a pandemic, of a global pandemic. There were a lot of press accounts going around asking people, well, what was going through your head at this time? And did you really think this was going to become this colossal thing? What was going through your head on March 11th, would you say? You know, actually, I saw one where it was the what's the last picture of you in your phone before March 11th. And, you know, it's kind of a somber statement that I'm going to make. But I had an aunt who was very dear to me who had passed the first week of March. And I went to visit some family March 7th. And that weekend, you could start to see people sort of shying away from air travel or uh, some of the discussions at the funeral was like, who's really getting this? What? Who's really impacted by this? Are Black people getting this? Are only white people who traveled getting this? You know, there was a lot of those conversations that were happening. And I would just kind of respond sort of, I think we'll have to wait and see. Um, because we recognized at the beginning, right, we were only testing people who had a history of travel. And then once the first case in each jurisdiction would happen where the person had no history of travel, no idea who they were exposed to, uh, we knew this thing would really take off. And so, you know, those first couple of weeks, we were so focused on having the right infrastructure and across our whole of government. Mayor Bowser actually moved into the health department uh, mm-hmm. for several months, and we worked in lockstep with our Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency. So a lot of my early thoughts were really around infrastructure and you know, this, we're in a marathon, we're not in a sprint, we need to pace ourselves. 
Uh, and you can say those things out loud, but the management of a pandemic or an emerging infectious disease, even if it's an epidemic locally, is just so overwhelming to people that the sense of uncertainty about it is that right. people are almost inherently going to try to create an approach that solves the problem in one day, solves the problem in one week without recognizing how we were at the mercy of this awful virus. Yeah. Now, if we look back over this one year, just setting aside the pandemic itself and its multiple disruptions, 2020 was just an extraordinary year. By any reckoning, we had really serious racial strife. We had President Trump's entry into Lafayette Square and the possibility of declaration of martial law. You had the violent insurrection against the Capitol on January 6th, followed by the deployment of 27,000 National Guard, and then the inauguration under contested. We've had fences are put up all around the city. Some of them are coming back. That was just quite the year for somebody like yourself to be struggling with a pandemic with all of this other stuff coming in. I mean, it just brings home the district's not a closed off island. It's quite the opposite. The problems that are big outside decide to come to you. So what were your reflections at this one-year mark? Unfortunately, some of the things that we saw culminating in 2020 and 2021, we have started to get a snapshot of those things during the Trump inauguration period, where we had people who came from all over the country to D.C. and destroyed some of our businesses and some of our property as a protest of the federal government uh, and who was elected president. And that continued for the entire four-year period where people would bring their grievances to the seat of the federal government with very little recognition for the potential impact it would have on the people who live here, the people who keep the schools running, the people who keep the buses running, the people who operate the restaurants where all of these visitors dine and the hotels in which they live. And so we, again, had begun to experience that and with an increasing amount of intensity that unfortunately you know, hit a significant pressure point with the murder of George Floyd right. and then culminating in the insurrectionist activities on January 6th. We have taken a public health approach here. We opened our Office of Health Equity in 2015 uh, Mm -hmm. within the department that really helped to focus on what it meant to be resilient, how when there's shocks to our system, whether it be a pandemic, whether it be the racial injustice that happened in our country, those are all shocks that disproportionately impact people who live under stress. So many of our vulnerable and marginalized populations require some special attention uh, during all of those activities. But I also, too, I get a lot of calls from my family every time something's happening in the nation's capital. I bet. Are you okay? Uh, you know, I live very close, uh, work very close to the seat of the federal government. I used to live close to it. I've moved a little bit out toward the Rock Creek Park now. Um, but there's, you know, a constant reminder, I think, to the to all of the citizens of our nation that the federal activity and where many of these protests occur are a small section of a city that's 68 square miles. And so we do try to go on about our day, but it is extremely difficult to do it when there's strife and agitation in our community. I can imagine. So looking back on this crazy year, 
What was your proudest achievement? You know, I I am remarkably proud at the swift way that our team here at DC Health responded uh, and responded across all sectors. We had our epidemiology team that was extremely focused on enhancing our data capacity, our ability to publish data, ensuring the integrity of that data and working uh, nonstop and diligently with our technology team and all of our community partners to make that happen. I'm remarkably proud of our regulatory team team that has done a tremendous amount of work to keep people safe in long-term care, including, uh, I remember a CDC site visit came where they came to assist us with nursing home outbreaks Easter weekend of 2020 Mm -hmm. and having many staff who did not spend time with their family that entire weekend working to ensure that we could control outbreaks that were happening in the nursing home. And the results of that were remarkable. And then, you know, just our entire team here, I'm often asked, well, who's your equity point of contact for this? And who's your equity point of contact Mm -hmm. for that? Uh, But we have made health equity everybody's business here. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, tell me the specific, is this policy? Is it programmatic and tactical? Because our program and tactical people know how important equity is to us. And whether we're talking about equity across race and ethnicity, geography, ability, gender identity, and sexual orientation, all of those things have been very important to us in how we do our work. And flipping this around a bit, what were the hardest lessons learned in the course of the year? Yeah, for me, I think the hardest lessons learned were to be able to manage expectations uh, and Mm -hmm. communicate effectively. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that wasn't necessarily a challenge unique to the District of Columbia. But we had people at the beginning of this that was like, this will just be here for two months. And then two months in, they want to go back to their pre-COVID activity, but it's not okay for them to. And so trying to communicate effectively in terms of why the policy decisions that we had to make were what they were, where we had plenty of data, but that data could only be interpreted to solve XYZ problem, what couldn't be extrapolated. So I think those were our biggest challenges. Internal communication was great. We, all of our teams are pretty much cross-functional teams that include people from EPI, and with clinical expertise as well as regulatory expertise and communications teams as well. Uh, and we've enhanced our communications capacity and you know, how we share information to, you know, I have staff who work on maternal, infant, and early childhood home visitation who've been home and working remotely, but ensuring that those services keep going. And uh, they need my attention just as all of the folks who are spending 50% or more of their time on the pandemic. Sure. Um, Just to follow up on one point you made, would you say that one of the big lessons learned was the the need for a different kind of messaging to communicate to people about their safety and their welfare and their behavior? And, you know, some of it has to do with masking and social distancing. Some of it has to do with leaning forward to get tested regularly. Some of it is overcoming whatever questions they have around vaccines, making sure those are treated respectfully and and that people see this as a, a choice with vaccines that is protecting their lives and their families in this. I mean, is it, would you say that there was a lot of discovery around the need to refine messaging in this period? 
I would on two fronts. One, there was a constant need to refine messaging as the science, science evolved, right, yep. evolved. And that's very difficult for some people to contend with, where they're like, well, last month you said not to wear a mask. And now you're telling me to wear a mask right. every single place I go outside of my home. And then there were also, you know, similarities around testing very early on when the testing infrastructure was very fragile. We were very specific in screening people out of testing. And now we're pretty much like, hey, you leave your house to go to work, you should get tested once a week or yep. twice a week, right? So how we changed our messaging around those things, either based on science or based on the increased amount of resources we had to respond. I think we'll see some of the same thing in the vaccination uh, program, right? There are people who got in very early at the middle of December who were ready and waiting for the vaccine. And there's still some people who have been eligible since December who haven't acted. Then we roll in these newly eligible groups and they tend to vary by state, but be very similar. And how we effectively communicate to people that what it means for it to be your turn when we say get vaccinated as soon as it's your turn, that doesn't mean two months. It means like that week. So really how we can really drive home those messages and remain a trusted broker of information, even though sometimes our message may need to change based on the science and the availability of resources. Mm -hmm. Now on testing, I mean, the storyline obviously across the country has been that testing Testing was a huge failure at a national level, and we need to think that through. You look at the 1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, enormous resources towards testing out of recognition of that. In the district, we got off to a slow start, and as you point out, it was fragile. But then it seemed to me, and maybe I'm maybe my, my impression is not accurate, but it seemed to me that there was a switch that happened, and and I remember going down and getting tested at the at the National Building Museum and going regularly and just being astonished at how efficient, well-managed, easy the whole experience was. And I was sending my friends down there and that was just one site. But what was the, what was the transformation that happened? How did that happen? I think one of the easier problems we had to solve was finding people who could actually collect specimens. I think that was e- it still had to be done. But I think that was the easier part. The harder part was really assessing what testing capacity looks like for this particular virus across the jurisdiction and across the country. When we first started testing, everything went to CDC. Then we got to a place where things went to CDC and public health labs that The number of tests they could do a day was highly variable, whether or not they had automated technology or manual technology. And then we got to a place where our hospitals, many of them had created these assays and they would be willing to participate in public testing schemas that, you know, for example, Children's National set up a testing site for all pediatric patients in, uh, in the region. And so as those types of the availability of the testing reagents and getting the right amount of swabs to meet people, as those things became more readily available, we were quickly able to enhance our program infrastructure here in the district because it wasn't necessarily a people issue. It was a, it was an other resources issue, not yeah. human, but other resources. And mm-hmm. now, as you've mentioned, there's testing seven days a week in the district that's publicly supported, that people don't 
have to pay for. It's completely free. And even if you don't come to one of the public sites, we've issued administrative orders, both myself and our insurance commissioner, that requires your health insurance to pay for your testing at least once a week. So it was really kind of getting all of those things in place now that has normed it. I I will say a bit of, I don't want to use the word caution, but that might be the best way to describe it about the substantial financial investment that's being made in the testing infrastructure for COVID-19. I think we have have a lot of lessons to learn about our response as a nation to Ebola. With Ebola in particular, there were grants dedicated for Ebola. We created Ebola treatment centers. We have all of these Mm -hmm. things that were very Ebola-focused as opposed to emerging infectious diseases. Um, We're still going to have some demand for testing for a while, especially as our kids go back to school and they're not vaccinated. And we'll have some people who still want to demand testing in lieu of getting vaccinated, which no public health person would say that's the right way to go. But I think we should be focused on how we use those resources to increase laboratory capacity across our country in general. How many of them now have automated technology? Many of these instruments and assays are not very different. You know, you buy a couple instruments to run PCR tests. No matter what the pathogen is, you'll be ready. I think that should be the focus, um, as well as this plan to have COVID-19 be uh, tested for as, as easily as we do influenza A and B in healthcare settings and even possibly at home, like pregnancy tests. Let's talk a little bit about vaccinations now. That effort's gone through various phases. You started with an online system. You then made some significant adjustments to address the equity issues and access issues using zip codes and using door-to-door outreach, which was signaling how seriously you were taking this all on board. You've now moved to a pre-registration system, and that's been recently instituted. And you have this other complexity of dealing with out-of-town non-residents who work within the district, who have some eligibility as federal employees, essential employees of essential services, healthcare workers, and the like, upwards of 40% of your vaccinated population. And then there's been a question which I want to put to you, which is about how this all gets sorted out in terms of supply of vaccine, because it just seems like the district, I say this as a district citizen of the District of Columbia, it just seems like we get shortchanged a bit along the way. Yeah, we absolutely did in this, and we still are. So um, you've highlighted some of the key characteristics of the district very well in terms of our resident population versus our worker population. And as we were making these plans with a team formerly known as Operation Warp Speed, uh, we would keep reminding them that if we as a country were going to vaccinate essential workers based on where they worked, and not where they lived, that needed to be taken into consideration with the distribution of vaccines. Our first distribution of vaccines we received, we got 4,000 doses with the need to vaccinate over 110,000 healthcare workers, long-term care workers, and residents and first responders. We were fortunate at the time that Maryland, the second week, second or third week, Maryland and Virginia both gave us 8,000 doses each to try to contribute to the fact that the model that all of the states were using at the time would not let a nurse in a hospital in D.C. be vaccinated in her home county of Arlington, right? So we took the position, the same position that we do with testing, that it protects our residents to offer these services to our non-residents. But as we got into our 65 and older population, our 18 to 64 population uh, with chronic health conditions, 
and recognizing that they had a higher degree of morbidity and mortality than all of these essential worker categories, we needed to make sure that we were prioritizing getting vaccine to them and created that through our scheduling process. The other thing that was interesting, and I, I'll, I'll remember this for a very long time as we were setting up the registration piece, we were working through our plan back in October of 2020. I was in the parking garage and I said to our lead emergency preparedness guy, I was like, uh, we got to have an option for people who can't use the internet. I'm on it, boss. We got the call center. Uh, so we've always ran a call center with our yeah. Um, parallel. Yep. Yeah. And, but the degree to which people have had awareness of it, because all of the talk around the country is the internet, people, seniors can't use the internet and people can't right. use, well, we've been prepared for that since the beginning, but it's been, it was woefully underutilized. And then when people finally got a hold of it, uh, we had a lot of people who weren't eligible calling and then sort of overwhelming that system. Uh, so we, and then the last piece that I'll say about that is we were very forward thinking in terms of where we located our vaccination clinics. They were all located in communities that had the highest burden of disease. But the detailed strategies and tactics you put in place to ensure that they're actually the ones using those sites and getting those vaccine appointments became something to iron out. Because uh, in a city of 68 square miles, it's no heavy lift for someone in a community that hasn't been impacted as much to drive across town right. to access a vaccine. Which we saw a lot of that. And then you took some corrective action. Absolutely. And, it, and, and you know, we continue to refine the process. For the past couple of weeks, every senior who has requested a vaccination appointment has been given an option to get one. We've been able to invite them into the appointment system. Last week, for our priority zip codes that have had the most disease, we were able to get out appointments for nearly a third of them. Uh, who had pre-registered, but it, it doesn't take away from this global issue that we simply just do not get enough vaccine uh, here in the district. Is there a political factor behind that? Or what is that? It's difficult to say because we've asked about it directly, right? And one of the initial responses I received was the only fair way they could think about vaccine distribution was to do everything by resident population. And that possibly there could be some level setting as programs had higher efficiency. So in the first weeks of the program implementation, we were ranked consistently in the top 10. Now we're lower, but that's a federal government problem we're working out, like actively having meetings about it, emails at midnight. But consistently ranked as one of the most efficient vaccine programs in the country, where every dose we got in, we were pretty much getting it out within seven days, unlike some other states. And we still didn't see an increase based on our uh, workforce population. It was it, We've still been sort of sticking to this resident population increase. Another solution that they've had is to give vaccines directly to other entities and not the state, which, you know, we welcome those extra doses because they end up in our city and they become available for our residents. But if there isn't strict alignment of how people are eligible, how people are going to get access, it could be in conflict with our equity goals. You have vaccines coming in through the public channel. Do you have vaccines coming directly to hospitals? We have uh, vaccines that come directly to federally qualified health centers and directly to retail pharmacies. 
uh, that participate in a federal retail pharmacy program. Now, we activated our pharmacies. We started using our pharmacies in December before the federal program got up and running. Uh, So we definitely see the value in how going to a pharmacy uh, enhances access points and it increases the capacity of our vaccine program overall. But when those retail pharmacies are not able to integrate into a system that has established priority for individuals, is focusing on priority zip codes in terms of the amount of doses that go to that group, then it begins to make things a little bit more unbalanced. And we have little control over that process. So in retrospect, what could have been done? I mean, we're not a we're not a state. We don't have elected senators. We have a very effective mayor, but we're we're in a slightly weaker position than states in being able to say, "Wait a second. This supply of vaccine is simply inadequate. What's the option looking back?" in order to get what should be a a higher, more appropriate level? Sure. You know, for us, and I I posed the question, I said, well, when we get to 702,000 people, are you going to no longer send any doses into the District of Columbia? And they were like, no, I don't think that's the plan. I think as long as you still have people who need to be vaccinated, we'll send you doses. But it's been at the heart of how we have tried to advocate for ourselves. And we've had conversations with Congresswoman Norton's team and everyone really pushing on this. And even Maryland and Virginia, we've done things as a national capital region to elevate this issue to the White House, even the Biden administration. So it's going to be critically important to see as the vaccine supply continues to increase, how states that are able to effectively implement their programs are able to access those resources. What what I constantly use as an example is there are states now who are vaccinating everyone over the age of 18 or over the age of 16. And those states, some of them are doing it because demand is so low in parts of their state or statewide. I do not have that problem. Demand is so high here uh, Mm -hmm. for every category that we have. We're starting to get, I think, to the tail end of seniors that there's no way I could fathom opening up this process to everybody over 18 without more people being extremely frustrated about the length of time that they're waiting to get an invitation to schedule an appointment from from the health department. And so effectively, the distribution process that exists now puts us behind in service to our residents compared to other states. If you live in Mississippi and you're 19 years old, you can get a vaccine if you want one. If you live in the district and you're 19 years old, you can't sign up for an appointment unless you have qualifying health conditions. And I think that type of inequity across the country is going to be a problem. I will say that I have been really inspired by the demand for vaccine from our priority zip codes, which are largely people of color, black and brown people. So you're saying wards five, seven, eight have been strong on the demand side. Absolutely. Absolutely. And very early on, and it is still consistent, one in four where a lot of our Latinx population lives, uh, we've had good demand and good uptake there. So I, you know, I think that that is really inspiring in terms of all of the things we were extremely cautious about or all the concerns we had around vaccine hesitancy and vaccine confidence in those populations. And when we, when we look at data over the last four weeks compared to data over the entire program, there's a lot higher proportion of people in those groups who are coming forward for a vaccine. Well, I should have mentioned earlier, I mean, we're very fortunate to have Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton. We've had for many years as a very strong advocate for what we've been able to accomplish here in the District of Columbia. What about variants? Are you really worried about variants at this moment? 
Oh, I, I am like every other health officer in this country who has their wits about them. Uh, and I, I haven't had the opportunity to dig de- deeply into this, but we sort of got into this space where, you know, the CDC is warning, don't reopen too fast. We're almost at the finish line. Don't undo all of our great work. And then it starts to be a ripple effect. Someone else opens up and then another place opens up. We're open at 100%. It's been a year. We're tired with this. COVID is over. And now we've gotten to a place where we plateaued at a higher daily case rate than we were experiencing back in the summer when we hit our second wave. And those numbers can go in either direction. I mean, we've been plateaued for over two weeks in this country and locally without any downward trend. That signals to us that the impact of the variance is very real, especially when that's happening in jurisdictions that haven't rolled back as much. In jurisdictions that have rolled back and said, well, opened up rather, and said, you can come dine in any restaurant 100% capacity. You can go to all of your large sporting venues. Their increase in cases that has been happening over the past two weeks is very rapid. And it speaks to the rate of transmission or how many people per one infected individual how many people get infected from that one individual, that number is higher probably in those jurisdictions and they're doubling time uh, than it has been since the very beginning of the pandemic or in March. Laquandra, do you draw a connection between what seems to be a pretty cautious incremental approach to reopening tied to this awareness of where we are in the plateau and the variants kicking in? Absolutely. My colleagues and I, uh, health officers, have been very vocal in our advisement to individuals that if you're in a plateau and you're in a plateau for a while, it can go up or down. And if it goes up, it's going to accelerate very quickly. And you want to decrease the amount of risk that you're including in your jurisdiction, the social mixing opportunities that you're including in your jurisdiction that would increase the likelihood that you go up instead of the likelihood that you go down. And I I think people have to still be sensitive to that. But unfortunately, I think a high proportion of our citizenry here in the U.S. as a whole wants to put the virus on a time clock as opposed to following what the virus is actually doing. Say a few words about the experience with schools and managing the threat, trying to manage the different interests in schools and and keep the schools functional and safe at the same time? Sure. We have a chancellor who's been here for, I think, uh, a little under two years and has been a remarkable partner for us with our public schools. Some things that you just, just as COVID-19 didn't create health inequities, the challenges that we're seeing with school reopening are not new in terms of highlighting those inequities. We're seeing that families in some of our highest need zip codes are less likely to send their child back in person, even when given the opportunity. They're selected, your kid has been identified as being at a higher risk for learning loss and social support needs. We invite you to take a seat in the classroom. And they say no. And then you have to compare and contrast that with people who are of affluence and of means who can work from home or or are working from home, but find it very difficult to manage the teaching and instruction of their child, which I think all of us can completely agree and understand that. 
but their child has a lower level of risk for learning loss and a lower level of need for social support in the school. Right. Uh, but they they are the ones who are most interested. Uh, this isn't just a D.C. phenomenon. It's been seen in studies that the CDC has conducted. They're the most interested in returning to in-person learning. And so I think there's a period of time where you really have to balance trying to encourage families into the system who have the greatest need before it can open up overall. One of the biggest things we see from the public health perspective is the lack of appreciation for how the rates may be lower in children than they are in adults, but they still exist in children. And we've been able to see some reassuring data around how schools can operate in person with the right types of safeguards. But I don't think people have a really an appreciation for how all of those safeguards have to come together to get kids back in classrooms, wearing masks all day, keeping your physical distance, whether you choose three or six feet, whichever side of the coin you're on for that, and keeping them with the same group of students for the vast majority of their day that they're in the building. Those things are critically important. Reopening a school to 100% of its pre-COVID capacity won't allow you to do two of those things. And I think that that's the part that we could probably use a little bit more of a healthy appreciation around that in terms of the challenge of reopening schools. We can test the kids. We have the infrastructure to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. That's not a problem. We can test them as part of a surveillance program when they don't have symptoms. We can test them in the school building with the school nurse when they do have symptoms. That's not a limitation at all. And we've seen moderate to high uptake amongst our public school teachers and staff when they've been given the opportunity to be vaccinated, they come and they get vaccinated to protect themselves and decrease the likelihood that an infected teacher or staff would pass the virus on to a child who could then potentially spread it to their home. So, you know, there's lots of things that are in place, but you really can't get around until the children themselves are vaccinated and are part of our protected core, get around this need to have some physical distance, universal mask wearing and cohorting where where possible at all times. Yes. Thank you. Uh, We're getting close to the end here. I want you to offer a few thoughts on what does it take to build people's trust, do you think? I mean, your job is all about trust. It's all about people having confidence that you know what you're doing, you know what you're, you care for them, you know the science and the public health, you're thinking ahead, you know what assets you have. And so what is it that you've discovered this year in this incredibly challenging period of time, all these dimensions spinning, what has worked the best in terms of building public trust and confidence? Yeah, yeah. I I think I'm going to regret saying this because someone on my team and someone on the mayor's team will probably see this, but people have to see you, right? They have to see you. They need to be able to make a connection with your visual and visible presence. And whether that's through, you know, press briefings that are a little longer (laughs) than than the average press briefing or being able to participate in community meetings and community forums to answer questions for audiences of varying sizes. I think those are critical elements of trust because it gives you the opportunity to be honest and say what you know and what you don't know. And for the things that you still don't know, because no one knows what your best advice is for protecting us against the unknowns. And so I I think being seen has been a tremendous part of building trust 
in communities. People don't necessarily get to know a press statement in the same way that they get to know you through conversation and communication, verbal communication. And you have to speak the truth, even though sometimes that's kind of uncomfortable. Right, right. And, And people respect that, right? When they're looking for a different outcome, but you are able to go through a process to explain to them why the situation is what it is, how we are going to address it. I think the biggest letdown that most people have is we can't tell them when this is going to be over. And we often say here, if we knew when this would be over, we'd be somewhere else working and being paid a lot more money, or we would have picked successfully the Powerball numbers the last time. So it's very difficult to be able to answer that question because uh, so much of this doesn't just con- depend on the science. It also depends on human behavior. Correct. So we end each one of these conversations by asking our special guest, what gives you the greatest hope, the greatest strength in this period as you think about the future? Yeah, so I would say my greatest strength comes from my faith (laughs) and a lot of being able to connect with friends and family around faith and having those conversations that really just kind of keep you centered in a place of peace despite all of this turmoil and accepting that, you know, it's a tough spot to get into because you recognize so lives are depending on uh, the decisions that you make. What gives me hope is being able to have seen the competence uh, manifested during this time by our public health workforce locally and nationally, as well as people still recognizing the dangers that are inherent to this virus and willing to make some more commitments and sacrifices for the greater good uh, during this time. And of course, like everybody else, the other big hope is the light at the end of the tunnel with vaccinations and a promise that we'll have enough for every adult by the end of May. LaQuadra, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Thank you so much for your service to our city. You know, as a citizen, on behalf of all my other citizens, I just want to tell you how grateful we are for your leadership and your commitment. It's quite inspiring. And thank you for your contribution, participation in our high-level panel. It's really been invaluable. Thank you. It's been indeed a pleasure. And I get as much out of all of these exchanges as everyone else does. So thank you for the time. Thank you.